This is a paradox we have to accept. Put the glasses off! Put them on! The extreme violence of liberation. You must be forced to be free. If you trust simply your spontaneous sense of well-being or whatever, you will never get free. What? Freedom hurts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast. Welcome to the Reading Club. We are now on to phase two of the Reading Club, um, the second deployment. We're on to discussing cynical ideology. But before I say any more about that, we're going to deal with the questions from the last episode. And there are quite a couple of them, um, some quite critical. And they obviously are responding to the last episode on uh, the emergency politics section, which uh, was the, our discussion of Andreas Malm and the proposals for eco-Leninism. Um, so let's let's deal with these first, and we'll just deal with these for maybe five ten minutes, and then we will proceed with the the main course. So, um, firstly, Richard Roberts takes uh, especially Phil and George to task for refusing the starting point of climate crisis. It seems almost intemperate temperance. The largest extinction event ever seems extremely unlikely to have a non-zero effect on political economy. Uh, he mentions desertification, transformation of the population, which is structural. People become precaritized, mass imprisonment, border guards, domestic slavery, and human trafficking all thrive. Um, and it, it continues on in this vein, um, looking at, for example, 1 billion future refugees and what are the impacts on political economy. Um, if Phil and George uh, will refuse to acknowledge an objective crisis right up to the point where they are in chains in a train car to nowhere, um, or rather it seems rather than um, if, but uh, so Phil and George um, might end up in chains in a train car to nowhere. Um, now, um, I mean, it continues on in this vein um, that it's especially disappointing after such a thoughtful analysis of the uses of crisis, state, states of siege, and so on, as well as Phil's strong defense of sovereignty as an essential political condition to see the two of them get squeamish or allergic when it comes to attempts to actually instantiate authority. Um, Richard continues, um, but I... Um, not going to dedicate more time. You guys can obviously read the the comment in full. I'm just reading it out here for the, so that we know what we're talking about. Um, and I'm going to read out another comment from Carson H, which is an agreement with Richard, and then uh, bring in Phil and George to respond. Carson H says, I agree with Richard. A lot of this discussion seems to hinge on the more or less unqualified dismissal of cascading developments that we can reasonably expect in the decades ahead, even if quote unquote extinction is nowhere on the table. As for the matter of cornucopianism, which is uh, what I had raised in the discussion, uh, Carson says the joke quite literally writes itself. Why is Marxist humanism necessarily predicated on the assumption that more energy equals more civilization? What if it happens that infinite growth is objectively unsustainable, et cetera, et cetera? Do you guys want to respond to that? Yeah, I think the the um, uh, Richard's, uh, I think there's a veiled threat in there as exactly as you put it that we're we're going um in chains on a in a train car to nowhere so p putting that to that that to, to one side um no i think the I'm, i i mean i i just i just disagree with the idea that this is the largest extinction event ever i don't think i think the or, or more it's that the is there any way to start from a from a political starting point rather than a scientific one that essentially 
decides all of the available options and constrains us to having to act in a certain way, having to to be mobilized, having to do X, Y, Z. I mean, so, you know, it may or may not have been um, intemperate temperance in the uh, in the episode and the discussion, obviously, you know, I I can't exactly remember exactly what I said. Um, But I do think that's the that's the um, response that I would would make is that, okay, you know, what is the political starting point? Not what is the scientific one is the question that we should be should be answering or sure should be asking. I tend to I mean, I agree with what George says. I can't help but thinking, you know, with the greatest respect to um, Carson H and Richard Roberts, um, I can't help but think this sounds like what a kind of, um, you know, kind of NGO director might say at the World Economic Forum at Davos, kind of trying to rouse everyone from their stupor by, you know, enumerating this cascading list of catastrophes that are coming our way and dystopian, you know, the dystopian politics that will come with it. And I just don't accept the, I simply don't see the reason to accept that um, the reality of that. I think, I mean, we're clearly, you know, kind of entering a period of um, tremendous upheaval. Um, And, um, you know, I don't deny kind of desertification and um, the kind of phenomena that was, uh, that Alex mentioned when he read out the questions. But at the same time, you know, there is kind of technological improvement and economic growth, which is so dis- which is so disparaged um, uh, by the two listeners in these comments, would also solve um, a lot of these problems by absorbing people into new productive structures. So, I mean, I don't think, I think on the one hand, there is no way of, I suppose what I'm trying to get, I mean, I'd, so, okay, let me, uh, let me try and wrap this up. So, I think if you accept the emergent, if you accept the kind of problematic that all of our politics is framed as emergency, you need to think about how far we ourselves are kind of complicit in that. Um, and so accepting the, you know, kind of um, simply saying that these aren't, you know, the war on terror or COVID or whatever aren't real emergencies, but this is the real emergency, doesn't seem to me to escape the problem of uh, framing politics in terms of emergency. The underlying assumption that kind of that um, humanity is needs to be dedicated to biological stasis to kind of preserving the existing ecological balance and the existing distribution of uh, diversity and species diversity and the way in which the current ecosystems function all of that all of those seem to be underlying assumptions beneath Carson H and Richard Roberts comments and I those seem to me to be concessions to green ideology, which don't seem to me be founded. And then finally, I think there is no avoiding the fact that um, civilized, you know, that the classical Marxist ideal, which, you know, it might not be possible um, because there might not be, there might never be the conditions under which um, uh, the working class will be able to formulate its own rule. Right. But I think those are the conditions under which the Marxist vision of socialism is impossible. I don't think there are any kind of objective barriers in the climate crisis to that happening. And I think indeed that the dystopian kind of image, you know, like we're going to be put on a train going to nowhere and slavery is going to come back. That's all just fantasy to its copium to avoid dealing with the much more mundane political problems that confront us. And if we rely on those kinds of extreme scenarios to try and motivate our arguments, I think, you know, we're losing. 
just um just to throw another point in there i think this idea more energy equals more civilization i mean i would actually defend that i think this idea that you know what is what is power is the increasing domination of nature of man's domination of nature and the decreasing domination of man over man as i think trotsky put it but it's i mean it's important that like the more energy you have the more things you can do the more problems you can solve the more possibilities become open to the to the species it's you know that is to be i think unequivocally defended in, in my view but i think there's you know to take i guess to kind of try to um have a more serious response to to richard roberts's point in particular i think there's a really good piece in uh Plaspus review james hartfield's um reviewing a book which is on basically like what like what are the limits to to growth today and he basically makes this distinction between objective and subjective limits to growth and says well you can kind of come up with various interpretations of marx's third volume of capital or green ideology does this in other ways as well that puts objective limits on growth like you can't get past this um, contradiction within the economic structure you can't get past this natural limit but he says actually this is not the situation that we're facing today instead it's subjective limits to growth i.e the capitalist class and we could <laughs> discuss the reasons for this but probably the defeat of the working class has something to do with it are not willing to engage in production and not willing to to drive society forward so i think this is the this is the way i would try and flip it around and say we should not be concerning ourselves with the quote-unquote objective limits to um to production i mean this is classic kind of idea of fetishism but instead it's what are the subjective political constraints that we face on on economic growth and on you know progress um so just briefly um the the discussion carries on and it's worth reading I mean, some good contributions really um alex mcauliffe um to a certain extent uh agreeing with some of the critique of Malm um, that we've already witnessed a full cycle of eco reaction against technologies and social orders that could have averted some of what we face now. And he mentions, uh, you know, opposition to nuclear power in the second half of the 20th century as a, as a good example of that. Um, and then Carson H um, discusses some of the impasses of the opposition between growth and degrowth, which actually I think I'm um, sort of in agreement with because the discussion of growth, you know, as it's reduced to GDP figures is, is problematic and then degrowth responds to that. And I think there is a lot of confusion about that. Um, but I think if we're going to be, my, my take is that if we're going to be reductive about it, you know, you have to choose growth over degrowth just from a basic kind of 19th century vision of what progress is. Um, and that, that, you know, I would, I would take uh, what George said. Um, I would go along with what George said in terms of more energy equals more civilization, more civil, more energy underpins and underwrites so many other possibilities that I think it is an, an index of, of civilization. Um, and there one, are no objective limits to it. I mean, that's the point, right? There are no objective limits, whether that's eventually cracking. Well, to energy, you know, no. Of... I mean, to certain resources, yes. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that, but then that... you have kind of technological substitution. Exactly. There's no resource that we've run out of as fracking proves for oil, right? There is one um, more question, um, which is uh, kind of on a slightly different angle. This last point um, by Ran Heilbrunn um says, I take Phil's excellent point, Lash's communitarianism often falls into an opposition between a politics of concrete interests and a politics of abstract ideals. Um, Phil, would you remind us what your point was about uh, Lash made in this episode? Because I don't remember the connection exactly. 
Yeah, so it was making the point that Lash was kind of, um, and you know, his taking essentially his kind of petty bourgeois outlook that the only place in which left politics could, or some kind of um, meaningful politics could happen was on a local scale and only kind of immediately dealing with, um, you know, local communities, immediate kind of problems and the questions even at the national scale, let alone at the international scale, were so kind of um, necessarily remote and distant uh, that they would always end up being um, Trojan horses for elite interests, effectively. Yeah, and uh, and Rowland Heilbrunn uh, continues by saying, you know, now climate change might indeed be a global issue, but to think that the globalism of the left's response to it simply reflects the objective global contours of the crisis ignores the sociological basis of the left-wing turn to globalism and the fact that this turn began a long time ago and has nothing to do with ecological issues. Um, I think that's uh, well put. I think we um, all agree with that. Okay, um, let's uh, move on with the matter at hand with uh, the second phase of the 2020 Reading Club on cynical ideology. Before we do, I just wanted to throw in a thanks to people who leave critical comments on Patreon, as I think I've said this before, and I do maybe sound sarcastic when I say it, but I'm actually not intending to be, but it is useful. It is useful to have these these challenges and these serious and often detailed and pretty valid like comments. And that is that is good. That is good. So I I do um I do hope that with that I've I've um, at least moved myself to the the first class of the train car to nowhere and maybe <laughs> you know Phil can have my my chains on his and his feet and, and arms and I'll just be um, in the yeah first class getting served tea and coffee and some crisps or whatever. I'll happily lead the revolt of the people in chains against the people in the first class cabin. Don't worry. That's um, what is it? Snowpiercer. That, that's is... Snowpiercer. Except, except yeah. that, except that, that would feed into the criticisms of you with regard to climate change. That you're <laughs> fighting this class yeah. war while you're all going to the gulags. <laughs> anyway, the train let... is going in a desert, not in a not in a snowbound well, world. Well, anyway, let's not extend this metaphor. Okay, so as to the matter at hand. Uh, this uh, section of the Reading Club where there's three parts uh, now, which we're recording this at the end of July, one at the end of August and one at the end of September on cynical ideology. Um, the concept behind this, I mean, it's described in um, what we've put out in, in the syllabus. Um, but the idea is that the end of history was um, a time of non-ideology, the end of ideology, supposedly, right? That we had uh, given up on grand narratives uh, and that we are now just sort of uh, rational, uh, objective figures who directly apprise ourselves of reality uh, and don't need kind of all these big grand ideological ideas. Um, and connected to this is a, a certain cynicism about uh, the idea that we can dream, have any kind of grand dreams and hopes for an alternative sort of future. And the question, I guess, is, you know, during the end of history, um, did we buy this idea? Did we buy this idea of not like of a post ideological world or did we just not care? Were we were we uh, not paying attention? Today, it seems that something has changed. I mean, obviously, it's the end of the end of history. Specifically, I mean, is that there is a growing sense of people being, uh, to put it in the that kind of internet parlance of the day, red-billed, uh, that we all 
believe that we see what is really going on, right? So we're all kind of believers that we've all taken the, you know, the the red pill from the matrix, that we see the true uh, forces and interests behind what is presented to us, and we don't buy the mainstream narrative. But if we're all so sharply critical, why does nothing seem to advance? Uh, that is a, a sort of paradox of our time. So effectively, the idea is that we live in a world where um, we don't really believe in ideologies and we don't believe in leaders either. Um, and that has prompted a turn away from analyzing politics, which could be done on the basis of what leaders say, and take it as read that if a political leader of a party or a trade union or whatever says something, that that represents the thoughts and beliefs of the followers. What has happened during the end of history as kind of politics has fallen apart is that you kind of need to have a critique of the people instead of a critique of politics to look at um, more sociologically what people are thinking or what people are believing or not believing. And so now with the return of politics, but as we say, without its vehicles, without political parties and collective organizations, uh, that presents a kind of confused hybrid situation in terms of analyzing and trying to understand what kind of claims are being made. You can't say, oh, well, the socialists are saying this and the Catholics are saying this and the you know, different bodies and groups of people and interests are saying and making these various competing political claims because they, people aren't organized into those discrete parties or blocks. Um, and that, that, presents a, that presents a problem and also speaks to a sense in which people don't believe their leaders. And if they do, they it's a, more like a, a constant shifting sequence of subleaders. Just to take one example um, from where I live from Brazil, which is that the, one of the only groups which all is spoken about as a sort of discrete group is evangelicals. And evangelicals vote for the right, for the far right in many cases. And, they're, and it's often treated like evangelical voters vote for who their pastor tells them to. Um, that is a sort of misrepresentation of reality, but it, it, it certainly does capture a truth to it. But it, what's interesting about it is that this is a world and a society in Brazil in which there's extremely little trust, trust in each other, in, in part rendered by the levels of violence, but also lack of trust in political institutions and in political parties um, and other organizations. And as a consequence, there's a flowing of trust towards various subleaders, like, for example, for certain for certain people in a certain subset of the population, evangelicals, to kind of their pastors who they treat as uh, the sort of new leader that they follow. Um, but even that is kind of shifting and uncertain. So we live in a world in which there aren't uh, coherent blocks and forms of leaderships or hierarchies from which one can read off politics. Um, this is all to say that um, the, this question of cynical ideology plays into it um, very closely. And as we'll come to find, this question of ideology is not just about what is in your head, but also about how you act, um, what you do. Uh, so just to look forward a little bit and to put uh, today's discussion, this month's discussion, in the context of the three months of this section on th cynical ideology. Uh, in the next section, we'll be looking specifically at the question of trust, which I already uh, hinted at there, looking at the work of Anthony Giddens, who was famously the sort of theorist behind New Labour, um, close to Tony Blair. And then uh, we'll be looking at conspiracy theory in the final section of this. It's a book by Timothy Melly, um, perhaps not that well known, but is uh, an excellent reading of what is behind conspiracy theories. I'm looking forward to getting into that. And of course, there's all the additional readings which we've included on that, um, things looking at 
technical solutions to trust through the blockchain, which I think is an interesting angle, um, other elements on cynicism and so on. So uh, worth checking out if you want to read more on this topic uh, and have a look at the syllabus. I'm sure you know where to find it. Now, um, on to the uh, reading, today's reading. Now, this is the first chapter from Slavoj Žižek's uh, Sublime Object of Ideology. This is his first book that it was published in English. Like, there's a couple of other, I think, published in Slovenian or French before this, but this was his big breakout book. And what's remarkable about this book as a whole, albeit we're only, we're only discussing the first chapter, is that most of Zizek's subsequent concerns, ideas, conceptualizations is found here. So if you're interested in Zizek and haven't been, uh, haven't read him before, other than perhaps, you know, some op-eds here or there, some essays or some lectures, uh, this is a, the, probably the best book to start with in some way, because it's, though, it's the first big one and it sets out a lot of the concerns. Um, that said, especially the latter sections of the book can be a little bit complicated in terms of his reading and explications of Lacan and his usage of Lacan. Um, I'm just going to try to put all of the, I guess, the his sort of intellectual project in a little bit of uh, context, just because I think it'll be useful as we go forward. His uh, ambition here in this book, and you know, more broadly over the course of his intellectual career, has been to rehabilitate psychoanalysis, uh, the, the philosophical core of psychoanalysis, um, which as uh, which is a theory which is indebted to Hegel's dialectics and is only comprehensible against that background. So really trying to bring Freud and then Lacan together with Hegel. Um, and it's a way of trying to understand contemporary ideological phenomena without falling prey to postmodernist traps, such as this illusion that we live actually in a post-ideological condition today. Uh, and it's interesting that um, obviously this was written or came out in 1989 uh, at what could be perhaps even the high watermark or near the high watermark of post-structuralist thought. And Zizek saw himself as arguing against that, against this uh, world of texts and symbols, free floating and so on. And to say, to make an argument that there is actually something real behind that. And his um, usage of Lacan as a way of um, what, in, in his view, rescuing Lacan from his association with these post-structuralists and actually saying, no, Lacan wasn't that. But fortunately, and I'm sure you'll be glad to hear, we're not interested uh, in Lacan here. Uh, not, not that we're not in general interested, but that's not the object of what we're doing today. Um, just to start this off and to bring uh, Phil and George in, I think that one interesting um, thing that Zizek tries to point out early on is that the question of why does this object take this form uh, is the key question, not just for him, but for Freud and Marx, and not the content. His argument is that they're formal thinkers rather than thinkers concerned with content. Um, what do you? What did you guys make of this? What is the importance of framing Marx and Freud this way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, so. Zizek starts with with Lacan and his his idea that Marx invents the notion of the symptom and that this that yeah exactly you you can only understand one thing by understanding the other thing which is the form that that first thing takes so the idea this the subconscious th this this is you can only understand this if you understand the form of dreams and with um commodities this is the 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 secret is not to be unveiled by some analysis of like you know what are what are commodities and you know get a load of them and and see what they're see what they're 
qualities are and you know kind of do analysis that way but to understand why it is that labor takes this form in the first place um so it's i mean it's an interesting idea because of course in capital there is a bit of you know there is an attempt to at the same time penetrate to 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 looking at the real character of commodities but i think it's a you know it is an important insight that this is the the question that you know we're we're posed with where we face in capitalist society which is why is it that work assumes the form um that it does in the commodity and why can it why can our labor only affirm its social character in the commodity form i'm trying to avoid getting too like jargony um in my <laughs> in my work no, no, but that, was, that, that was good that was good i was on a tone of voice training so i should be able to speak wow. jargon free it's all about form so there, there i guess yeah it's all about form phil it, yeah it's i mean it's it's a very it's a wonderful i think chapter in some ways uh with all the kind of i mean in some ways it's dated and it's stamped with the concerns of the social theory of the period particularly you know the kind of back and forth about alphazarianism which we don't need to get into, um, but I don't. And you know, I Gijak certainly tries to defend Lacan as an Enlightenment figure, and there's a controversy as to how far he is or isn't. Um, and I suppose I can't really comment on that. Um, I don't know enough to be able to arbitrate either way. But I do. And and but Lacan has only really made sense to me through the prism provided by Gijak, and so I've only ever been. You know, I can only really relate to any. Um, claims made for Lacan that are made by Gijek because that's the only time they seem to me to be kind of insightful and comprehensible. So with that caveat, I mean, I think it's a great kind of account of the um, subtlety and the significant challenge that Marx and Freud pose in different ways. And and I suppose it's not accidental that to some degree they're kind of uh, conjoined or um, intertwined ideas develop in the same kind of late 19th century um, context. So I would put it a bit more strongly, I suppose, than what George said, that it is in, it is in fact the central question. And there is no, um, you know, that the Marx explicitly eschews the idea that he's, uh, that, you know, kind of identifying labor as the as the core of the commodity isn't the issue at all. And that, you know, as, as is made clear, this was the kind of uh, the innovation of uh, earlier bourgeois political economy. And rather it's that point about why it takes, why does it take the form that it does? And that if you're unable to account for that, you're not really able to account for the entirety of the picture. Yeah. And it's easy to delude yourself that once you've kind of uh, stripped away once you've stripped away the form that you've understood everything in fact you know the kind of the idea that you tear away the veil and that you see behind it and then everything is clear that's the illusion and that's why you have to understand why it takes the form that it does that it is in fact um the much more difficult issue yeah that, i mean that's what i really love i mean both about freud and marx and particularly zizek's reading of them and indeed like zizek's whole work is that this it's always goes one step further right that like if you take form to be the the box and you think well that's just a surface and then you go into it further and you look at the content then you're getting to the real thing then it goes aha no wait what if it's actually the form that really matters and we have to ask not just what is the form but why does this content take this form um and i think that's always yeah. a good um impulse to have when trying to analyze things to go that one step further and it invites 
a historicization as well. If you say, why does it take this form? You say, okay, well, how did it come to take this form as well? Yeah, um, it's, but it's not just the sake of completeness, I suppose, in terms of an analysis, but also that it's the central question as to why, you know, why does human work or labor, why does it take the form of wage labor specifically, you know, that is exchanged in the form of um, and time, you know, why does it amount to time? So I think, and if you're an, unable to answer that question, and that, I mean, that's, that's the central question, then you're unable really to understand um, society. So if you're able to say, you know, that the, um, the source of value is labor time, and that's what kind of um, uh, integrates and makes possible the exchange of commodities, if you're unable to account for why it takes the form of the commodity, then you're not actually able to account for the form of domination in capitalism, which is yeah. uh, the wage labor form. So it's it's not just kind of for the sake of intellectual um, tidiness, you know, to put it in a kind of uh, trivial way, but also because it's the key to the actual kind of experience of, um, of exploitation and why, as Zizek says in the text, as to why... Um, to understand very precisely how the promise of uh, liberty and equality gets uh, subverted into the actual experience of exploitation. Yeah, no, very good. Um, obviously, that's more of a scene setting and to kind of get us thinking, I guess, theoretically about what the object of what Zizek is doing before getting into, <laughs> well, getting into the content, <laughs> um, ironically enough. Um, as a, as a way of just kind of starting this out, because we're talking about cynicism, what do you guys take to be cynicism? I guess just in a common sense way. I mean, what, or perhaps maybe before you had read this or besides you had, before having thought about it, what would you take cynicism to actually mean? Webster's like Dictionary George, defines cynicism. You see, it's like, one so of gone. George's responses like mm, to yeah. um, many of George's political insights, deeply cynical his kind of uh, sneering responses to when you tried to make kind of a more subtle point. I think those are good examples of cynicism. Yeah, well put, yeah. I think you're confusing cynicism with just straight talking, cl clean and clear analysis. And that's a well, cynical that is ideology. right there. That is pure ideology, my friend. You're oh, eating straight you know. from the trash can. You're a little ideology <laughs> raccoon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I did actually Google what, what is cynicism. Um <clears throat> And it's acting in, you know, acting in your own self-interest rather rather than morally. And I think that's like, you know, generally when we use it, we we mean that there's at least one more level or, or a couple more levels today. So now if somebody's cynical, they're not just they're not just acting in their own self-interest, but they're they're doing this whilst knowing that they can get away with other people thinking they're acting morally or they can somehow in, insulate themselves from criticism even now the you know you kind of have the honest cynic of course who th is the person who says i'm just acting my in my own self-interest and then it's like okay well you know you can't be criticized for doing that now because you're upfront and you're honest about just being um not about kind of just being out for yourself i think that's the um that's the way i would understand it well, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I take that. I guess what's interesting is that when it comes to discussing cynicism as an ideology in a way or as an ideological formation, it's precisely that that self-interest perhaps dispenses with the moral uh, cloak that it would normally wear, right? So this presentation as a, as a you know, your own self-interest as an actual moral endeavor, that it stops 
under cynicism, under cynical ideology, it stops doing that or dispenses with with that um, or, or, or is basically uh, upfront about the distance between its ideological presentation and the reality. Um, and it, what's interesting is that there's, it seems to be, a, there's an account um, in Zizek of where the cynicism comes from or how cynic, contemporary cynical ideology develops. Um, so this is obviously something that Zizek takes from his reading of Peter Sloterdijk. Uh, Peter Sloterdijk's critique of cynical reason came out in Germany in the mid uh, 80s. Um, and was actually a bestseller there. And he, uh, Zizek probably had been just recently reading it and draws from it kind of directly. Um, the Slaughter Dyke, um, it's a big kind of 500 word tome, but I mean, the, his basic idea, at least, is uh, 500 words. Wow. That's five, a lot to read. <laughs> did I say 500 words? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one, so, you know, that's a very cynical maneuver just to print yeah. one word per page yeah no right exactly um so anyway and so all of those uh, words are ideology it's yeah just ideology on every page that would be that would be um yeah that'd be a useful book um so sort of like traces uh you know cynicism back to actually to enlightenment critique because it emerges sort of as a first as a satirizing uh critique of power, uh, an unmasking of power, until we eventually end up with cynicism. And I think we can also read this as a sort of um, disillusionment of, uh, of the world, right? Where the world, which is previously wrapped up in all sorts of fetish and mysticism about, um, you know, kings and lords and religion and all the rest of it, um, gradually becomes demystified. But that demystification after a certain point, um, maybe falls into cynicism where there's a, just a complete lack of belief in anything at all um perhaps a, not just cynicism but even a, a nihilism um what this uh, what just one kind of uh, term to bring up which is important in terms of um trying to dialogue with this idea of cynicism is that Sloterdijk and Zizek uses this Sloterdijk distinguishes cynicism from kinicism with a K um, Sloterdijk traces that back to Diogenes and he sees kinicism as a much more productive or positive approach, which is can be assumed as to be laughter irony and particularly a kind of plebeian or popular stance where you laugh and mock the powerful um, and that Sloterdijk tries to in some way rescue that kinicism against uh, contemporary cynicism. So what do we think of Zizek's account of this move from um, what he terms naive consciousness uh, to enlightened false consciousness? So, you know, naive consciousness would be this idea that, um, you know, th that reality and to put it in, in this term, naive consciousness is an understanding of ideology in which ideology um, prevents you from understanding reality because ideology is a distorting lens. Um, in that form of naive consciousness, you can approach the subject who is under the power of ideology and say, look, but this is reality as it really is. If only you throw away these glasses of ideology, you'll see true reality. Uh, and this naive consciousness um, Zizek uh, puts it as, you know, they do not know it, but they are doing it. Um, so basically that uh, ideology rests in your, in your head and you, and you need to be, you know, kind of shown the, the truth about social reality. The notion of uh, this, this enlightened false consciousness uh, is one which doesn't buy that idea anymore. Um, 
in, in which understands that reality cannot reproduce itself without ideological mystification. Um, so the, this the, the kind of uh, enlightened false consciousness, I guess, is the correlate to cynical ideology, um, not just the old form of ideology where it's like a mask dis disguising uh, disguising particular interests, but it but is actually uh, this new form of ideology that Zizek is concerned with. So how, how do we understand this move from naive consciousness to enlightened false consciousness? And what is the role yeah. that kinicism plays in, in prompting this transition? Yeah, it's the it's the move from <clears throat> they they know not what they do to they know very well, but they keep doing it. This idea that, you know, you can you can I think it's it's a it's a rejection of a of a kind of a simple move from a state of mystification to this idea that if you just demystify, it's it's fine. You've solved all the you've solved all the problems by just um owning any of those like religious people who think God exists with a with a really um good argument from from your from your Dawkins or your Hitchens or yeah. wherever it would come from. Um but yeah, I mean and I think it I think it it represents or it captures some of the complexity of the way in which we um i guess we're kind of we're, we're kind of doomed we're forced to act in in contemporary society where you know adorno says like yeah you you see through you see through advertising but you buy products anyway like i'm currently podcasting from a from an apple computer i mean i saw the adverts and i thought like what an idiot would you have to be to to kind to be kind of to believe all of the the the, the crap that they say about about their their computers but and I thought, well, actually, they're probably quite good machines, and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do need a, need something to podcast from. So, you know, I went and, yeah. and I bought one. So there is still, there's still, you know, you you don't renounce the falsehood that you know. I guess is is the way is the way to put it. Or you act as if you are not are not doing that renouncing. Yeah, indeed. Um, and I think that Zizek elaborates on this a little bit by referring to morality in the service of immorality. Um, and he he does that, I think, and this is a, a kind of political move on his part, and he takes us onto the terrain of politics by doing this, by saying that this form of cynical ideology is basically a sort of self-defense self mechanism on the part of power to um, shield itself. So it's been ridiculed by this kind of cynical laughter by um, basically centuries of centuries of, of enlightenment style critique and ideology critique of pointing out, ah, what you actually present as all these high-minded ideals, uh, Christian morality, um, human rights, whatever it might be, um, actually uh, was just particular interest behind that. And so pa what power does in response to that uh, succession, that onslaught of enlightenment critique is to uh, present back cynical ideology as a defense mechanism which is to say, yeah, we don't really believe in this stuff anymore. It incorporates the ideology critique that it's thrown at it as a way of defending itself. It's already inscribed in what, uh, you know, in what it does. And so this idea of morality in the service of immorality um, is a, a way of conceiving of morality, for example, probity, integrity, things that politicians should defend um, as immoral, as a lie. So I think it might be worth as a way of trying to... Um, 
give this some meat? Can we think of some political examples of this sort of practice, of this sort of cynical ideology as practiced um, practically by um, concrete, real politicians? Well, I mean, I would just qualify something you said about the idea that it's, um, you know, the kind of the latest ruse of power. Um, I mean, I th- you know, I think that's right, but it's not, it's not with respect to ever more kind of sophisticated and refined forms of control, but the product of, uh, you know, the product of the exhaustion of pre-existing, pre-existing political um, solutions and ideological frames, right? So kind of classical conservatism resting on religion and the family, um, and now long, you know, it's kind of uh, totally, um, those forms are kind of have been hollowed out in uh, Western liberal democracies. And they only kind of exist as um, as uh, mocking things. They don't even kind of exist as advertising on brands, you know. I don't know. I mean, I can't, I don't know that it, there is kind of a specific political example in a kind of uh, election campaign I can think of. But I suppose it's something, you know, something along the lines of the fact that you don't or OK, here's one. So this is a political one, actually. Um, so George Bush, the first, you know, the second George Bush and a lot of his um, a lot of his appeal was based on the fact of him as a reformed Christian. Right. So he was the kind of the alcoholic, coked up frat boy who um, had his, uh, you know, had his Damascene conversion to a life of um, probity and uprightness and public service. Um and he needed to have gone through that in order to be accepted, right? So if we just kind of, if you just came to us as somebody who was kind of like a clean cut figure, um, who uh, who didn't actually have kind of the ordinary experience of life, of, you know, taking lots of drugs and kind of being, uh, you know, kind of being an alcoholic and having a good time as, as most rich frat boys do, right? He would never have been accepted as authentic. So... That would be why one of my political examples. So in the way in which he presented himself politically, it was necessary for him to kind of his authenticity was gra- the way in which he came across as authentic was grounded in kind of not not being sold as a um, not being sold as the kind of clean. He wouldn't be accepted as an actual kind of authentic embodiment of virtues of Christian kind of, you know, conservative Christian virtues, unless it actually been through all the kind of travails of modern life do you think he continued to be an alcoholic uh cokehead i mean because it would be more cynical if that redemption arc was completely no, but that's what i'm saying false. it's more I... cynical that he didn't right do you think yeah that's the point it's more I'm, I'm, because... not sure, I'm not sure i agree with that either because i mean that redemption arc is you know proves that you too you truly can be reformed so it, it there is there is still um, a trajectory towards a higher kind of moral plane there, which is believed in. It's not done cynically. Ooh, so I actually may, maybe maybe there is something to what Phil's saying that the most cynical thing would be to always have planned in advance to have that. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I'm gonna, I'm only gonna do this in order that I can have the redemption. Um, but, uh, and but that, think, maybe I mean, that's I what he that's did. The way, but I think that's the way the evangelical churches run, right? 
the the pastors well, they get, who run they get them, flat, they get frat boys hooked on. No, but they know um, the pastors who run them. They know that they're inauthentic unless they're kind of you know they're caught with a gay you know with a gay sex worker doing meth, right? And then they have to you know the wife have to say, oh, you know, I'm going to stand by my man, and the family's going to stay together and all of that. They know that that's the only way they can come across as authentic. So they have to go through the experience of taking drugs. And having lots of you know, kind of um, adulterous sex, um, pro possibly illegal sex, you know, like um, so. In a sense, like you know, I mean, I'm stretching this a bit too far, but no, I mean, in a sense, I, I, they I know that that is the condition under which they come across as authentic. I, I, I mean, I would say the Trumpian. What what's the redemption arc going to be for the for the for the punga boys? No, go on, Alex. You were no. I mean, I point. I think that the kind of Trump alliance with evangelicals is is perhaps a better example because that is truly cynical. Unlike George uh, George H W no George W Bush, uh, where there was a genuine uh, redemption arc. He really you know supposedly believed in uh, the evangelical cause, or at any rate, he maintained the mask, and that's what's important. He maintained the ideological mask of saying I against abortion. I believe in all these moral and cultural questions that his evangelical base cared about. Trump dispenses with all that, and it's cynical because he says, "Look, I'm a piece of shit. I'm um, you know I." I well, he doesn't drink, I suppose, but um, you know, he's kind of uh, morally irreputable. Um, doesn't yeah, he's had loads of wives. Loads he doesn't wives, really make a big point about exactly. believing in God. And know, and it's cynical, and it's cynical, therefore, both on on Trump's side. And I'm not saying that as a as a barb against him. It's just a description of cynical ideology, and from evangelicals as well, who also kind of. Um, you know, say they don't believe in in this stuff anymore. And it's like, well, actually, I don't even care if the president represents this or not, but continues, um, you know, acting as if he does, right? And, and maintains yeah, but the, it, the pretense. It, I guess. And it's also cynical. I mean, you know, that so much of it is about funneling as well. It's kind of, um, you know, kind of neo-Protestant prosperity gospel, a lot of it as well, right? And so it's also kind of um, cynical to that degree as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think you can also think of like, um, I don't know, you know, the laughing at Democrats' insistence on probity, which of course we know is hollow, but there, there's still, there's an ideological mask that's being worn and Trump just laughs at that and says, look, I am corrupt, but so are all of, all of them. And so it already, um, you know, the, the, the critique, the ideology critique, which would be thrust at Trump uh, is already inscribed in yeah, what Trump is disabled. doing. it's disabled. Yeah. yeah, and, and also, I mean, yeah, and it also kind of, um, it makes it all the more kind of, um, kind of odious in a way, if you support Trump, because he owns the libs and because, you know, he kind of um, exposes all the kind of the uh, disgusting self-righteous hypocrisy and moralizing of the Democrats, and just kind of talks plainly and straightforwardly. Um, but then you end up supporting him, kind of reproducing this system, essentially, just without the mask of the Democrats moralizing. Then that is um, the height of cynicism. Yeah. And I mean, so to explore a little bit more of this notion of how ideology works, according to Zizek, um, he makes the point that, you know, if illusion rests uh, in knowledge, as in what's in your head, that the illusion is something that occupies your brain and blinds you to reality, then uh, you would we could say that we do indeed live in post-ideological times because few people actually believe the narratives with which we're served. 
We don't buy the bullshit and we just, you know, supposedly analyze or perceive the world rationally, objectively, impartially, and so on, that we choose the best policy based on the best technical grounds. We don't believe in any kind of grand claims. Um, but Zizek argues that we're not, in fact, post-ideological. What is what is the significance of, of, uh, of Zizek's move of where he locates belief and illusion, not in our thinking, but in reality? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's this this idea that <clears throat> you know we can't we can't be post ideological because it's not that ideology is some misunderstanding, but it in, in an important sense it supports being. It's not some false consciousness of social being, but it's being itself supported by fo- false consciousness. So he kind of draws this idea from Lacan, where it's like it's not that fantasies come out of life and they're kind of that second order thing that's produced in fact they underlie and that's the basic structure um of of human life so illusion structures reality rather than reality producing illusion which i think i'm not ex- explaining it probably in the most unless you've already read no, it i think that was probably good. In the most, that's good yeah yeah but in, in the most compelling way like i think what what it's it requires you know i think it you, you kind of read the chapter or read some of Zizek's stuff and it, he, you know, he makes this argument and he does, it, it is more compelling, I think, or more convincing than probably sounds when I'm sort of summarizing it, but that's his, I mean, that's his idea. And that's why we can't be post ideological because it's, it's, it's there in the structure, the foundation of, um, of social being. So it's like, you can't be post social being because you know it doesn't, no, but, but doesn't make sense i'm not i'm not sure he argues that you can never be post ideology i mean presumably um you know one argument for communism would be or that the idea of communism would somehow break through ideology that the truly political would break through ideology so i don't think it's a, a permanent state of human affairs um but that capitalism creates particular kinds of fetish and and ideology which are inescapable and i think this is um explicit albeit in in kind of elementary form towards the early part of the chapter when he does his what in my mind is a brilliant explanation of commodity fetishism in fact i think it explains commodity fetishism better than anyone else has including marx um just by laying out the way that um under feudalism you have fetishism uh, between people, right? That people, that you believe that the person who is a king is actually a king, that he has this kingliness to him. Um, And that capitalism destroys those old forms of fetish and represses them, but at the cost of reincorporating this fetish uh, at a different level between things, right? So things um, appear to each other as as social or real human beings. Um, And, you know, from there you get this idea that you know, money has a has a real existence outside of the structuring network of meaning in which it exists. So, um, I think the the idea is that we can get behind, we can get past ideology. It's important to get past ideology, but that we need to politically act to change that. We can't just um, denude ourselves or rid ourselves of these phony illusions. Precisely because, and I think this is a, a fundamental philosophical claim, you know, that there is no real direct. Um, access to social reality as it is, that it's always structured by a whole kind of web of fantasy, to the, which makes it, which makes it uh, make sense. So I think it's worth thinking 
back also to what cynicism as as an ideology, as a form of ideology, actually does for us. I think this is an important part of um, what Zizek argues through. It arguably comes through more clearly in later sections of the book, but it's important to understand, I guess, what is um, what is important about ideology, what it fulfills to understand how we then might get beyond it. So it might be worth thinking back to the episode we did with Todd McGowan, um, the episode on contradiction, episode 167. Um, McGowan is probably one of the best readers of Zizek and one of the best, um, I guess, uh, I don't know, is it is it insulting to say simplifier of Zizek? But in any case, he makes Zizek make a lot of sense if you just want to read a kind of account of from a to z uh rather than uh through all the you know skip out all the jokes and the confusions that zizek introduces um but anyways i told mcgowan and we point that we all discussed on that episode was that we need to hold on to contradiction not to try to seek an escape to wholeness or oneness so how does cynicism as a as an ideology do you think fulfill a a need or fill a void Like what, what does it serve us to be cynical as citizens, as subjects? Well, it kind of um, alleviates us of the need to act, right? I mean, Zizek uses all sorts of examples of this, um, uh, you know, kind of the different ways in which this functions. And one famous one he's used, he took from Václav Havel, who was the, um, the Czech dissident and from um, the Warsaw Spring and eventually became president um, when um, Czechoslovakia uh, became, well, when the Czech Republic separated. Anyway, but uh, Václav Havel said, you know, he realized like his real enemy wasn't the true kind of believer, the member of the Communist Party who believed that the Communist Party knew the best path for Czechoslovakia, but rather the kind of the ordinary, um, I think it was like an ordinary shopkeeper who was totally cynical and disenchanted with the regime, but always put up the appropriate flag and the appropriate posters on the you know appropriate kind of national day when they were celebrating whatever. And so despite being, you know, the cynicism of the shopkeeper was like a safety valve. Yeah. He thought that he was um, not supportive of the regime, even though in his actual kind of day-to-day -day practice, he went through all the necessary motions that were required of the regime in order to be a loyal and obedient subject of the regime. And I think cynicism, I mean, this is Zizek's point, but it, cynicism functions in the same way. It kind of um, allows us to imagine that we're not dupes, so we feel smart. Um, I remember actually like uh, the, another, and I think conspiracy theory functions in a way in this way as well, which yeah. I guess slides into this, you know, I remember like a, a family friend saying when Osama bin Laden was, um, was uh, assassinated um, by the special forces in Pakistan, this family friend was totally dismissive and said, oh yeah, you know, that's a fairy tale for the kids. Meaning, you know, kind of putting himself in a position of like being the kind of enlightened adult and everyone who believed in the fact that Osama bin Laden had actually been killed by U.S. special forces was just a kind of credulous infant. Um, and I think the cynicism functions in the same way. Um, it allows you to kind of, um, you feel smarter than everybody else. Um, and it kind of makes you feel like you've, uh, you've don't need to actually kind of do anything because you are already distanced from the existing structures of power yeah and they but in so doing they reproduce just like uh, harvel's uh, vassal Harvel shopkeeper yeah look at all those idiots putting out the the signs and the flags i'm just gonna i'm gonna do it cynically um even though obviously this has the same 
you know, the same end consequence. So I guess it is, you know, at this point when Juzek was writing, the, I, the the idea of cope wasn't or copium or whatever was not um, was not developed. Um, probably a good thing. Otherwise, there would have been a few digressions, presumably on this. But I think it's you know it's related. That kind of it's a way. It's a mechanism that you can uh, manage. You can kind of introduce distance between yourself and the ruling ideology without having to um, to act against it. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, I, I think the explanation of um, of anti-Semitism is is great in this you know it says like that you know i if, if ideology respond then this in terms of ideology in general but then you can apply it to cynicism that you know ideologies the question about ideology is why do you need to believe this right so the anti for the anti-semite the jew resolves uh problems within you know solves the whole within western society why is society conflictual um well it's because the jew is this corrupting element within society which we need to expunge yeah so his point is you don't respond to anti-semitism by saying no jews are like you know jews are just ordinary people like you or me um and you know let's empirically investigate how much money they actually have and um, yeah you know whether or not they're kind of uh, more sexually promiscuous or something like that um because that's to miss the point um that rather in kind of as you say in anti-semitism it fills a kind of a function in the outlook which is inured to empirical refutation and in fact empirical kind of refutation would only strengthen it because the as the end you know the dedicated anti-semite will obviously just say well you know the fact that jews look like you and me just proves how devious they are exactly yeah um, so but, that kind of so yeah anyway but so i think it's worth applying that to cynicism as well i mean you mentioned conspiracy theory i think that's a good example uh that the conspiracy theorist not just wants to feel smart but you know has this idea of um total control that there's this secret cabal which is effectively influencing uh, matters and explains the way the world works. And I think the question is, why do you, the conspiracy theorist, need this? So even if all the things you say are true about this secret cabal, why do you need to believe this? Right. And I think that's the yeah. important question. And this is what this is the example uh, Zizek uses of, of Lacan's, which is that the man discovers uh, his wife, che- you know, believes his wife to be cheating and discovers it. So it's true. And he still asks, even if even if you were even if you were even if it's true that your wife is cheating on you, you were wrong to be suspicious of her cheating. Yeah. And because w- what that suspicion resolves some need he's within pathologically you. he is pathologically suspicious exactly and um, so and and so the cynical position of the conspiracy theorists is that it allows you to retain your consistency right that it allows you to continue expecting the worst and to say that well we are totally controlled by this elite so it absolves you but from it, needing it's to more act than that, though, because it also um yeah it, well, it absolves you i think i mean that's the main thing right and because it's all agency and no structure to use you know those kinds of um somewhat hackneyed sociological terms right there's nothing to do because the agency is totally monopolized by the kind of evil cabal of lizard pedophiles or corporate elites or whatever the hell it is and therefore, there's no agency for you left, right? Because they control everything, and therefore, yeah. it's you don't have to do anything. And anything you do do is just kind of um, exposing the illusion rather than actual kind of uh, a stronger or uh, more laborious process of political transformation. 
So I, I think this takes us on to a, a, an important political question. I mean, if we're, you know, being critical here of cynicism and we're, you know, kind of buying Zizek's account of it, where does, and I, I'm not sure exactly about this myself, uh, where does cynicism lie? Does it lie with the rulers or the ruled or both? I think that's Who's responsible uh, for cynicism? With both, but no, mainly I think, with the ruled, I think. I think that's basically what you could take the political point to be, is that traditionally... You think, oh, think of all these cynical politicians. They're, you know, they say what they're just liars. They say one thing and do the other. But actually, the real cynicism is—I don't want to sound too much like Zizek. The real cynicism is is in saying that on the part of the ruled, because that's where that kind of disconnect between thinking that the political system is is corrupt and unfunctioning and still kind of tr trotting along to to do whatever it is you know put up the, the the bunting or vote or whatever that's that's the that's the i guess the twist that he's trying to trying to make in that it's yeah it's redirecting the the location of cynicism from those those bad rulers um to 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 making us realize how our actions and beliefs are not consistent with each other just to take slight issue just briefly with your presentation, George, because I'm not I'm not sure I entirely agree with your tone you... policing, George. No, not at all tone policing. I, I, I he can say it in whatever tone he likes. We can speak, but they you should listen to the content anyway. Um, that wasn't even a tone. That was some stupid accent. I'm not sure. Are what you I'm doing are there. you are you knowledge policing me? You're <laughs> yeah. saying that just because I'm wrong, I shouldn't be allowed <laughs> to speak, or I should be corrected. Exactly. Well, yeah. What an go offense. ahead. Um, no, but the 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 politician who does one thing and and says another, I don't think is cynical. I mean, that's a critique of hypocrisy, which you know, fine. Um, but I think that the real cynical politician is one who says, I do one thing and I say another, right? So he doesn't, he, he, he dispenses with a mask of saying the right thing, but acting badly. He says like, Hey, I act badly, basically. Um, that is the, the truly cynical yeah, politician. That's, that's true. The one who says I'm a real piece of shit. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I take that. I take that correction. Um, and I think actually Zizek uses an example of um, of uh, the uh, Polish uh, president who says on, who said on TV, you know, they asked him this is from the justice and uh, justice and law party. Um, what do you and plan justice. to do? Uh, sorry, law and justice or oh, whatever. PIS, I think, is the acronym of the Polish party. Um, the what do you plan to do now you're in power? And he uses this extremely vulgar expression, which is I'm, I'm next in line to fuck the whore, um, which is a kind of military expression where just men would line up to fuck a whore. Um, and that was his basic answer. Like it's our turn to fuck shit up basically. Um, and, you know, and this was on live TV. This wasn't like a, a candid conversation where he revealed his true intentions. Uh, there's just this it, like explicit vul vulgarity to it where they've dropped all pretense to any kind of ideological mask of saying, well, we want to improve the lives of our citizens, or we want to do this for human rights, or um, you were even we're less bad than the other guy is still in some way, some ideological defense. Um, in, in traditional terms no it's purely cynical ideology a good um example from a somewhat different uh context which i i was uh planning to raise when you asked like what what do you think of cynicism and i can't remember where this example is is from i, I certainly um yeah should should be able to and should be able to attribute it but there's a, a band called xtc and they have an album cover uh go to which is um if this isn't ring any bells then you know it must be something more obscure than i thought but basically it says this is the 
this is a record cover this writing so it's all text on the front of the the album this writing is the design upon the record cover the design is to help sell the record we hope to draw your attention right. to it yeah. and encourage you to pick it up and then dot 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 it's um uh, but if you have a free mind you should stop reading now because we are attempting because all we are attempting to do is to get you to read on and buy the record yeah this is a double bind because if indeed you stop you'll be doing what we tell you and if you read on you'll be doing what we wanted all along and it's like okay this is it's obviously they're kind of playing with this but this is like if you it's a very sensible way to to um, avoid criticism by basically saying the standards i'm holding myself to are so low that you can't criticize me yeah. for having yeah low standards uh, and you know what i love about that example is that it shifts from naive consciousness to enlightened false consciousness halfway through so it starts off by with a kind of um, clinical uh, disregard which seems to be um satirizing the record company saying, oh, I just want to get you to buy this album. They just want us to make money, but we're just really doing it for the music, right? That's what it seems to give the impression. By the end of it, it's just basically mocking, taking the piss out of the person who might be a fan um, and just saying, that, yeah, as you say, we hold ourselves to no standards whatsoever. Um, so I like that it, it literally slips from, from you know, kinesism to just pure cynicism halfway through. Um so one last question before we turn to the final issues of kind of how do we respond uh, to cynicism? Uh, and that is this very interesting notion where uh, in which Zizek discusses the circularity or tautological nature of the law's authority. That the idea being basically that ultimately we follow the law because it is the law, that there might be justifications for the law such that it is good or that it makes society function, or even that it is true to take a, a kind of more traditionalist approach. Um, but Zizek points out that these are just after the fact rationalizations, that in fact, um, we b believe in the law and we follow the law because it is the law. Uh, and he uses this with reference to Kafka, um, you know, who treats the bureaucracy as all powerful, and maybe he knows that the bureaucracy is all powerful, but yet it is there and kind of presents itself as the final determinant in matters, and therefore we believe in it. So Zizek discusses this idea as authority without truth, that law has authority, but, but no truth. Um, is this actually an adequate description of the contemporary state today, that it, the, the state represents an authority without truth? This is a really interesting and kind of perplexing notion for me because we've made the point on this podcast, I've argued before, et cetera, that... Um, that what we have today is an absence of authority, that the state has power, um, that it can literally exercise powers of coercion, but that it has very little authority today. And indeed, we make the point about political parties and various other political actors that no one really embodies their own authority. They defer it elsewhere. What Zizek argues is that, of course, this is back at the end of the late 1980s, so maybe things have changed. That might be an, an, an explanation. But his argument is basically that there is no um, that there is indeed authority, but that it has no truth to it, that we just kind of at this stage just follow it because it's there, that in a, in a cynical sort of way that we just continue acting even if we don't believe in it. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the weird, or not weird, but the kind of more difficult part of this, and it's, you know, kind of Zizek's cultural theory pyrotechnics going from, you know, kind of uh, Alfred Son Rattle's kind of critique of Kantian epistemology and Marxian political economy, and then kind of flipping over to, um, you know, Kafka's kind of literary theory, Kafka, and and then Kafka as a, as a critic of Althusser and all this. And 
I'm not quite sure it all hangs together. I suppose the difficulty is that, from what I understood of what Jujek was saying, is that this is the nature, it's a deeper psychoanalytic point. It's not a point about the nature of authority today, but that rather authority is always to some degree um, self-referential. And um, that, you know, and this is a, a very basic thing. It's the any, this is another Jujek example, but it's the parent who says, do it because I say so, not because there's any reason for it, but simply on the basis of authority itself. Um, and I'm not sure, I mean, if he says like it has authority, but no truth, I think it's just a redis, you know, it's another, it's using different terms to describe the same problem, essentially. So I don't think it's necessarily, uh, I don't think it's a different take from us saying the state has no authority. I think he's saying essentially the same thing using different terms, using authority in a different way. Um, so, but I think, yeah, it's true that there is no, you know, kind of, there is no meaningful substantive authority on which in which um political rule can be exercised well i guess it still has authority by the fact that we continue to respect what the state tells us to do um so yeah i guess i yeah i think that's a plausible uh way to untangle that not george yeah i think it's worth going back to um todd mcgowan the, the episode or the um i can't exactly remember the the way it was put but this idea that you know the, the modern notion of authority is is grounded in this this french revolutionary concept that you know we have to we replace any um superhuman idea of authority with our own um kind of collective political will and so yeah there is an extent to which you know authority is self-referential because the only authority that can have any authority is one that we um, that we recognize ourselves. I mean, that actually ended up sounding quite Kantian, but maybe you know that's not necessarily <laughs> a bad is, thing. No, but that is isn't, the point. Isn't it the opposite? That isn't is it the, the, the opposite that it's not self-referential because it used to be it, it, it used to be self-referential that authority was just authority because this is the authority, no, this is God, etc. And that no, but Gjek's point is that it is always self-referential. So I mean that he's making right. the case that it is always self-referential. And you could say that we don't, you know, um, the modern kind of state, state sovereignty, which is to say the collective, you know, our collective will um, reflected back at us is the basis of the ultimate basis of authority in modernity um, after the French Revolution. So in that sense, authority is self-referential. I guess you could say it's not, you know, that we don't... Um, that we don't accept our own authority would be the, you know, if you accept the terms that authority is ultimately self-referential after the French Revolution, there is no authority higher than ourselves um, in the form of uh, a sovereign state, then um, we don't accept our own, you know, we no longer accept our own authority. And maybe there are, you know, there we find ways to get out of it. One of the ways to get out of it would be, you know, to find kind of sources of authority that are outside of uh, the sovereign state. Um, I mean, this is kind of using themes that, um, you know, that are in kind of my area, but I think they're consistent with the Jujekian point. So, for instance, kind of grounding authority in the United Nations as a higher form of um, as a higher form of representation. It's a way of escaping um, the actual nature of authority, which has to be rooted in the supremacy of the sovereign state. Um, so yeah, we don't, for whatever kind of, you know, political and ideological reasons, we don't use, uh, we don't accept our own authority in a way that we perhaps used to, and that's what's new. 
Not that authority is self-referential now, it's always self-referential. Authority properly understood should be and can only be self-referential, but rather we don't accept our own, um, we don't accept our own authority. That's why yeah. there's no authority. Yeah, I know. I think that's well put. Um, and uh, I think it's an important point to, to bear in mind, however we understand Zizek's particular formulation. One final thing to round this out um, in kind of responding to cynical ideology, um, if we can accept that it is um, a problem that power no longer even pretends to wear a mask, um, how are we to respond to that? And I think the, to really historicize it, we have to ask ourselves whether now at the end of the end of history, cynical ideology still applies. Um, are we living instead maybe at the end of cynical ideology or is this moment uh, the moment of its triumph? Um, I mentioned at the beginning that kind of we're all red-pilled now, right? Um, that we, none of us really, um, we, we all believe we've kind of broken free from mainstream narratives, that we're kind of all outsiders today. Does that mean that we're all actually stuck in ideology even more so? So is this the triumph of cynical ideology or are we moving beyond it to something else or a return back to belief? What would be the, I guess, the proper Zizekian response to this? Um, because I'm not sure he's addressed it directly and indeed we'll have to get him on the podcast to ask him. I think George he, can do a good Zizek impression. No, I, I please don't not, do the impression. Not, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going. I, I, maybe I was, but then when Phil said that, I thought maybe I shouldn't. No, I mean, I guess what would the proper Zizekian response to this be? Well, I mean, you know, this idea, I think, and this does come through in um, versus tragedy, then as fast, which I think is a, a good distillation of his um of his some of his later ideas as well that basically whenever you think that you're outside of something that's when you're most in it so the idea that you oh yeah we finally got outside of it now we're outside of capitalism we're out you know we can be the outsiders like no that's the that's a classic move of of in, of incorporation um to, to think that you've broken um broken out so yeah i think he would probably be I mean, I'm sure he's even written um, something about this, um, not in his review of The Matrix Resurrections, where he famously, of course, didn't even watch the, the film. Um, but in some of his other writing on The Matrix, uh, there is probably something about how the red pill is the pill that takes you into ideology because it's the one that takes you to the real world from the, the Matrix world. There, yeah. there, there you go. That, that's half decent Zizekian yeah, response. That's good. Bill? No, I, I just to finish this all. I think <clears throat> I think that's right. I think I mean I've as I say I've kind of wavered back and forth on this on where we stand. But if you think of kind of the contemporary kind of culture war issues, or I mean you know maybe culture war isn't even the right way to put it, but even the discussions over the you know the very fraught ones over you know COVID right over like oh well this is all just a big plot to vaccinate us and secretly implant us with microchips and implementing this new techno medical total control of our lives um, and we don't believe in that and alternative and the and the other side thinking you know there's this plot amongst these people to undo science and rationality um, and whatever else it might be and we're just trying to have some basic level of civilization and whatever right but anyway let, let me just let me just finish laying this out and, and you can take issue okay, with it but okay, okay. um that both of them um are trapped in ideology because both try to resolve the contradictions in society by 
again creating the sense of a coherent whole that they that they're them them the people that they belong to their group is the the ones who see the truth and are you know unproblematic and uncontradictory and the problem is elsewhere right it's it's out there the, these people are the ones who are um the problem and if only we got rid of you know the deplorable anti-vaxxers or we got rid of the the terrible um you know doctors and experts then we will be truly free and whole i mean if we got rid of all of the anti-vaxxers all all of the doctors all of the experts all of the vaccinated people then yeah, we would we, we wouldn't have anybody left, so we wouldn't have any problems. So that would be that would be one <laughs> one one right. solution. It's like what Sartre says about football. Everything in football is complicated by the presence of the other of the other side, the opposite team. So yeah, I mean, I'd, I would I maybe not for now, but I would I would dispute that the culture wars framing. I'm not a fan no, of that. Perhaps, perhaps that nobody. I, 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 there's a lot of politics to it, but I think it ends up being framed in a kind of um cultural way you know of like oh are you the type of person who wears this are you the type of person who doesn't wear a mask etc okay so um just a little bit of uh food for thought for the next time when we'll be discussing trust and then the time after that when we'll be discussing conspiracy theories i think what at least for me what zizek's account uh suggests to us is that Obviously, instead of taking off the ideology glasses to see the real, to see the kind of true social reality, which itself would be a sort of post-ideological illusion, that to break the power of ideology, we have to confront the real of our desire, to put it in, in really kind of Zizekian terms. Uh, that real of our desire is kind of found in our dreams. This is what Zizek seems to suggest, and I think it's worth asking um, and worth asking ourselves what would be the implications of that. If Do we need to put on actually the ideology glasses as um, as happens in John Carpenter's They Live, which Zizek uh, discusses at, at some length in uh, his film, The Purpose Guide to Ideology. To put on the ideology glasses today, what would that mean? What would it mean to put on the ideology glasses, which is in some ways able to break through cynical ideology? Does that mean believing for its own sake, even, um, that we need to re-embrace belief uh, even at the cost of getting hurt <laughs> um to put it in those it terms it would mean it would mean listening to bunga and believing everything that believing everything we say well, that's something uh at least it's something um or you know to use uh, pascal who zizek relies upon to explain a little bit um of what he means about this is that you know you should just get down on your knees and pray and thereby you will believe Right. So the so for, for you just act yeah, as if you, you believe, to Banga. Yeah. act as if you believe and then, uh, you know, good things uh, will follow or true belief indeed will follow. So, you know, it's like it's like the example that he also gives about um, about communism, which is that, you know, you don't understand you don't uh, believe in communism because you understand Marx. You understand Marx because you believe in communism, that there's this sub unconscious belief before belief that needs to happen um but i don't know how you could yeah, uh, i mean i that. think that i mean yeah you i mean i don't know man like the well the idea the pascal the way gjet kind of uses the pascal thing is the idea that kind of going through the automatic routines of catholicism will get you to belief so it's not about your inner you know it's kind of outward performance of the um of the rituals will generate the necessary behavior and that will kind of uh, keep you on the true and narrow. So you don't need to kind of rely on your um, inner, you know, the kind of the strength of your inner conviction. 
um i'm not sure that works for uh, you know for kind of um the motivation necessary for secular political transformation mm, maybe not um I mean, I think you, you probably do need to be predisposed in some respect to believe in the necessity um, of, uh, you know, a greater vision of human emancipation. I think that's probably true. And, and, act, um, as if, and act as if you do. Yeah, but um, I'm not, yeah, I don't really see that there's a Pascalian equivalent, but maybe, maybe I'm being, uh, you know, maybe I'm just being too close-minded. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea that, you know, act as if you um do believe and then the belief will will come i don't think that but how does that make you different from the from vaslav havel's shopkeeper either you know no this is this is i mean but this because the shopkeeper isn't acting to try to get themselves to believe they're just doing it to like to in fact to keep the distance like imagine if they thought that putting out that bunting or whatever would make them actually support the regime they'd never do it they're only doing it because they think it's a way of reinforcing that distance whereas pascal wants to close that that distance and you know it's the most probably the most cynical wager of of all time it's like yeah i don't i don't believe i'm going to choose to believe and i'm going to make that belief into reality because not because i think it's true or not but because if it is true and i don't believe then i'm fucked i'm you know going to go to hell forever so i should <laughs> you know be quite be quite uh, logical about this and think yep i'm going to i want to believe for like rational reasons because i want to go to heaven and then I'm going to act and I'm going to uh, make myself make myself believe. But I don't think that's very plausible anymore with the, in terms of Catholicism. Like, I don't think you could now think that if you acted like a Catholic, you would become a Catholic. But maybe that was much more plausible several hundred years ago. Um, yeah, we're kind of stuck with with the inability to do that now. I think it's just not possible that we can have that shortcut. That, that may be true, um, certainly not with regard to Catholicism or even maybe to some full-blown belief in communism. But nevertheless, I guess, need to find some way to get beyond the, the sort of cynical impasse, um, which I guess we're all in some ways afflicted by. Okay, we'll leave this here. Uh, we look forward to any questions and comments and criticisms you might have on this episode. And again, we'll discuss it at the beginning of next episode. Um, if you do, um, send in also questions for us to discuss next time. We're going to be discussing Anthony Giddens on trust uh, as a way of trying to develop these sorts of ideas. And we're going to be moving from the most abstract, I think, in the case of uh, the Zizek reading through to the more concrete, which is uh, Timothy Melly's account. So um, we hope to make it increasingly more sort of... Uh, tangible and political as we go forward in this uh, three-month uh, section on cynical ideology. Hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to your comments and we will uh, see you in a month's time, dear Reading Club. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Um, so anyway, uh, just to conclude, first step, I guess, is to get down on your knees. Uh, that, that I will take from, from Pascal. No, I'm not going to say that I'm going to cut that. <laughs> It's, it sounds like you're getting down. It sounds like I'm getting down on my knees. So that's, that's terrible. That's fine. That's fine. I'll, just... I'll keep on standing. You get down. <laughs>